Welcome. I'm Raihan Salam, President of the Manhattan Institute, and I'd like to welcome you all to the 33rd annual And I'd like to welcome you all to the 33rd annual Walter B. Riston Lecture. We are thrilled to have Peter Thiel with us tonight to discuss the end of the computer age. The program for the evening begins with dinner, which will be served shortly. Then our chairman, Paul Singer, will come up to give Peter a proper introduction. Before I let you enjoy the company at your table, though, I would like to briefly acknowledge what is a deeply felt absence in the room tonight. Recently, Don Smith, a trustee of the Institute and a dear friend to many in the room tonight, passed away. Don was a person who cared about ideas and their power to improve the lives of others. And for those who had the pleasure of knowing him personally, he was a constant source of warmth, wisdom, and good humor. I know I speak for the entire Manhattan Institute family when I say he will be missed. Ladies and gentlemen, Please enjoy your meals. We will be back with this evening's program shortly. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. And welcome to the 33rd Riston Lecture. This lecture has become an important night in America's intellectual life through the force and consequence of the ideas offered at this podium over the years. The formula for that success is simple. We invite extraordinarily bright speakers who offer bold perspectives, perspectives which rarely get a hearing in Manhattan ballrooms or, or progressive covens. Delivering the Riston Lecture in 1995, that was a huge laugh line, I mean. <laughs> are we napping? Delivering the Wriston Lecture in 1995, James Q. Wilson asked why Americans were so unhappy with a country that was more prosperous and powerful than ever. Wilson drew attention to several insufficiently addressed signs of disorder, crime, failing schools, a coarsening culture, and deteriorating civic life. Wilson argued that these problems had begun with the dissolution of the family, then, as now, a controversial view. Today, disorder is rising again. And I'm not just re referring to Mayor de Blasio's much lamented return from Iowa. <laughs> You're getting there. <laughs> this disorder is the consequence of a nationwide effort to roll back many of the successful policies that MI scholars have spent their careers advancing. De Blasio's presidential campaign may have ground to a halt, surprisingly, but, but the preposterous policies he supports are moving full steam ahead, carried on the platforms of less incompetent but equally radical candidates. Here in New York, but not just in New York, we face an opi opioid and single parenthood crisis overlooked for too long by the experts. America's labor market and civic well-being suffer from an education system that continues to prioritize bureaucrats and administrators as well as entrenched pow uh, uh, power over students. 
not to mention the curricula, now ubiquitous throughout higher education, that indoctrinates our students to be ashamed of Western civilization and to despise private enterprise and economic freedom. As for today's campus culture, let's just say that it welcomes a broad diversity of ideological viewpoints, from Noam Chomsky all the way to Robespierre. <laughs> Wilson's remarks in 1995 and their echo and resonance today are typical of the work and approach of the Manhattan Institute. MI scholars have never been afraid to challenge lazy conventional thinking and offer bold diagnoses and solutions. We're persistent and when we have a view about something, we do not back down under pressure from elites and cloistered cabals of holier-than-thou academics. MI adapts with the times but and also more so with the journal. Where's Dan? <laughs> but we've also stood for certain principles, rule of law, public safety, free markets, and the belief that culture is a key determinant of the welfare of societies. In investing, where I spend much of my time, this combination, the ability to adapt without losing sight of core convictions, is a necessity. You must be able to think independently and form strong contrarian views, while at the same time maintaining a good deal of humility about how much you don't know. When I first started investing, my dad thought that if his son was brilliant enough to get into Harvard Law School, then he must be smart enough to make money in the stock market. Wrong. <laughs> I learned the hard way that listening to the so-called authorities and blindly following the trend was no substitute for starting from a few core principles and applying them in innovative ways to the unique investing challenge that each new era brings. It's the same in policy and politics, and the Manhattan Institute embodiment of this ethos is, I believe, what gives us our competitive advantage. It's embodied in the outlook of our new president, Raihan Salam. Back in 2008, Raihan and his then co-author, Ross Duthat, uh, was challenging the GOP to adapt its guiding principles to the new political realities. He's already bringing the same spirit to his leadership of MI, and we're looking forward to the leadership that he has in store. Our lecturer tonight is another example of this spirit of independence, persistence, and innovative thinking. He's also one of the most effective critics of groupthink, whether in business, politics, or philanthropy. Peter Thiel is an entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and in the words of economist Tyler Cowen, one of the most important public intellectuals of our time. Peter has spent his professional life in Silicon Valley. He helped found PayPal, was the first major outside investor in Facebook, and more recently co-founded data security giant Palantir, as well as the venture capital firm Founders Fund. While Peter has been one of the most successful architects of the information age, 
He's also been one of the most incisive critics. Peter argues that our technological imagination has been too modest, too content to fiddle on the margins when what we need are transformational breakthroughs. The country that brought the world the automobile, the skyscraper, the airplane, and the personal computer has become enamored with kitschy applications that facilitate things like takeout delivery, late night car rides, and being able to tell your friends that you liked what they had for lunch. <laughs> These are no substitute for the path-breaking, world-changing innovation that America needs. Peter has distilled his argument into a tweet-sized max maxim worthy of our age. We, want we wanted flying cars and settled for 140 characters. At first, I didn't understand that reference, perhaps because I'm banned from Twitter. Not by Twitter, but by my internal communications team. True. Peter understands, as we do at, at the Manhattan Institute, that robust innovation relies on a, on a system of free enterprise. Like so many philanthropists and scholars in the room, Peter has committed himself to preserving the policy framework necessary for experimentation, growth, and most critically, America's reputation for unimpeded inquiry, which has historically driven our culture of innovation and must do so again if we're to meet the unique challenges of this century. A society that challenges, uh, that censors challenging ideas may well be headed on the path to suicide. For those of us with the means and courage to not just speak out against the intellectual mob, but to actually build something superior in its place, there's a great and, there is great and urgent work to be done. Tonight, that means providing a forum for the challenging ideas of our 33rd Wriston Lecturer. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Peter Thiel. Well, Paul, thank you so much for that incredibly flattering introduction. I was worried it goes downhill from, from there. Uh, I, uh, I thought I'd maybe start with a somewhat modest uh, story. This was uh, about 20 years ago when I was uh, starting PayPal. I was speaking to a friend of mine, Peter Robinson, at the Hoover Institute. We are brainstorming on advisors to get to the company. He thought, you know, we're trying to do this innovative finance tech company. Um, you should talk to Walter Riston. And, uh, and I, my response was, uh, who, who is Walter Riston? And, uh, and then, you know, um, he sort of uh, complained about how young people don't know anything about the past and how America does a terrible job. Um, um, of um, not honoring its great business innovators and, and leaders. And, and so I, I'm um, extremely honored to be here tonight and try to correct this in, in, um, in, in, some, in some small ways. And, and, and uh, the, the part of the, the Walter Riston legacy that I think is still so, uh, so present is he, you know, it was, um, he, uh, you know, he transformed uh, Citigroup into, uh, you know, it scaled it up like crazy from the bank that served the city to bank that served the world, ATM machines, credit cards, Interstate banking, the money turning into a money center bank. It was, it was, uh, and uh, and then what? What the uh, legacy of Riston draws our attention to in so many ways are questions of scale, problems of scale, and that, that's what I'd like to um, focus my remarks on tonight. That uh, we have, you know, a question of scale is uh, if something's good, more of it's better. So there's a quantity element, and then of course there's a quality element where 
once you get to a certain scale, um, maybe you can do qualitatively different things. And this was, you know, this was the vision for for, for Citibank, and then uh, and then um, and then perhaps there's also a, a normative dimension where maybe um, you're changing the world into a better place. And from a libertarian or free market perspective, perhaps um, by uh, making you know expanding capitalism, you you can sort of transform the world on a transpolitical level. And that was certainly the hope that uh, that that Riston had. And, you know, in some ways, uh, this this resonated with me very deeply when, when I was uh, when I was starting PayPal, uh, where you know we had this sort of vision that we were going to lead this uh, financial revolution, a libertarian revolution against all central banks. We're going to liberate money from uh, government control, and uh, we're going to go to this transpolitical, technological level to uh, to transform things. Uh, now, of course, I think there are sort of a lot of qualifiers on this. There are there are times. All right, I'll slow down a little bit. I have a lot to say, though. Uh, there are there are t there are times when um, there are times when uh, this sort of transformation um, does not work in a in a libertarian direction, and uh, and uh, um, the the global scale can be can be quite different. Um, and uh, and uh, you know, I, I sort of think of um, Margaret Margaret Thatcher's biggest mistake was uh, she thought that. Uh, in the late 70s, that embracing the EU would be a way to crush the unions in the UK. So you went to a transpolitical scale to um, to bring about more free markets within uh, within the UK. And then um, at the uh, a decade later, she, she she thought of this as her worst decision ever, where the free trade of the EU came with a not so um, 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 inexpensive Brussels bureaucracy that would regulate everything from the size of bananas on down. And so uh, so there are sort of a lot of uh, Challenging questions about uh, about scale. If we were to tell the two technological stories about scale at this point, one of them is a story about uh, um, is, is still the sort of crypto revolution, which is uh, which is still going on with Bitcoin and has um, has has this sort of libertarian potential. But I think there is there is sort of an alternate um, tech story, which is about AI, big data, centralized databases, surveillance, and and the uh, which does not seem libertarian at all. You're sort of going to have the big eye of Sauron watching you at all times and all places. Uh, and I, I often think that uh, we live in a world where um, the ideology always has a certain valence. So we, we, if we say that crypto is libertarian, why can't we say that AI is communist and, uh, and at least have this sort of alternate uh, account of, of scale? So there are, there are things where you, uh, you scale things up and you get a qualitative difference, but the qualitative difference isn't always a good one, and we need to think very hard about which ones play out in, in which ways. Now, I think um, for Riston in the 1970s, uh, if you want to sort of summarize it as a picture, it was, uh, it was that um, if Manhattan, if New York City was going to scale, the next logical scale was the world. And uh, that, was, that was the scale on which one, one had to move to. And I think there is a sense in which uh, finance, um, technology, and, and the internet form has sort of a nat natural limitless scale, and, uh, and that kind of makes sense. There are a lot of other things where scaling is very different. I think in, uh, you know, in a democracy, if you have sort of a majority vote, that's good. If you have a supermajority, that's even better. So if you get you know, 51%, that's, you're probably right. If you get 70%, you're even more right. On the other hand, if you get 99.99% you know, of the voters, you're sort of in North Korea. And uh, you have sort of a sense that, um, and so there's always, this uh, wisdom of crowds that, uh, that works up to a certain point and then that transitions into sort of a 
madness of crowds. And I think this is sort of the unhealthy development that's taken place in Silicon Valley in recent years where we had very positive network effects that at least have tilted, um, tilted in this more uh, negative thing at scale where it seems you know, completely deranged in, 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 uh, in recent years. And I, I suspect this will be, this will be bad um, for, for innovation at least. Um, you know, maybe, maybe the business can still work at scale, but uh, I think uh, one of the things that does not scale terribly well at all are ideas and innovation. And uh, you know, there are a lot of different critiques of big tech we can, we can discuss, but uh, one critique that I am sympathetic to is that uh, innovation does not scale well. And that, uh, that it, as, um, as the tech industry's gotten bigger, or it's uh, bigger governments, th things like that, you're going to have the innovation more slowly. And so whether we go to the communist AI or the um, libertarian crypto world or, uh, or some complicated intermediate hybrid, um, I think it will actually happen slower than people think. And this is always, you know, this is always a, a big concern I have. There are, um, one, of, you know, one of the other institutions that I think has scaled um, quite badly, so I always think of science as the big brother, uh, the older brother, tech's older brother who's fallen on hard times. And, um, and big science has scaled extremely badly. And this is sort of the, you know, um, the group think of the, the universities, that uh, they sort of have this ethos that they give us a universal knowledge about the universe that everybody gets. It's something that scales to an extraordinary degree. And the, the lies that we tell around big science have been linked in with the university lies. Um, and and I, think, I think sort of a lot of our problems um, can be described in this way. One that I, um, you know, I'm gonna, this is my, my sort of candid, candidate for the biggest lie that uh, the Obamas ever told, a lie much bigger than any, um, any sort of inaccuracies told by the current president, uh, bigger than anybody, uh, I, uh, and, it, and I'm not concerned about lies like the WMD thing in Iraq or the, if you want a doctor, you like your doctor, you can keep him, because those were sort of partisan, there was some partisan pushback. This is one that's sort of all-encompassing, that sort of follows from getting the scale wrong. Um, 20, and they, they both did, so I'll, I'll let, lady, let go ladies first, Michelle Obama first. So, quote, um, the one thing I've been telling my daughters is that I don't want them to choose a name. I don't want them to think, oh, I should go to those, these top schools. We live in a country where there are thousands of amazing universities, so the question is, what's going to work for you? And so, um, at scale, you obscure all the differences. Of course, you know, we, we know they were lying. The Obama's daughter ended up going to Harvard. Um, and, um, um, which is, you know, it's reassuring. I mean, it would be very disturbing if they, if they actually believed that this, this stuff worked at scale in the way um, they, they claim it does. You know, her, her husband um, came up with an even more succinct one telling two lies at once. You know, just because it's not, um, quote, just because it's not some name brand famous fancy school doesn't mean that you're not going to get a great education there. So let's parse that two lies. First off, if it isn't a name brand famous fancy school, you're not going to get a great education. You're just going to get a diploma that's a dunce hat in disguise. Um, if it is a name brand famous fancy school, you probably also won't get an education. <laughs> and, uh, and that if we, and so, you know, if we, if we, were, to, if we were to right size the scaling for our intellectual life, you know, you should describe Harvard not as one of the thousands of great universities, you should describe it as a Studio 54 nightclub. You know, it's probably, it's this tournament, it's probably, you know, good for the self-esteem and bad for the morals of the people who go there, and maybe call it, call it a wash. Um, probably not a criminal thing, doesn't need to be shut down, but uh, probably does not deserve a, probably does not deserve a tax deduction. Um, so, 
if we um, if we if we come if we come back to uh, if we come back to uh, sort of the um, the sort of um, you know less uh, the much healthier world of uh, finance and capitalism um, and back to the uh, you know theme at hand you know one one of the questions um, is what are the kinds of scales we should be uh, working on in um, in 2019 and you know how would one how would one update the uh, the the, the Riston perspective and. I think um, I think one uh, one sort of uh, frame, framework uh, for this is that uh, you know th uh, that uh, there's and there's, there's sort of different questions you can ask on the level of Manhattan, New York City. You know, uh, it's it's sort of uh, the, the capital city of the world. It, we can't we can't really go back from that because uh, you know you can't be the, go back to the capital city of New York. You know, Albany has more standing under the U.S. Constitution than New York City, but uh, we don't really want to uh, turn it into Albany or something like that. Um, and so there are sort of questions about how um, how how do we succeed at uh, at scale in these in these places? Um, and there's a you know Silicon Valley ver version of this question, but uh, I want to maybe um, focus it on the United States version. And uh, and the question for the United States is um, is is the best strategy for the U.S. to go big to go with with uh, with this sort of uh, global scale? And this has probably been a thread throughout the U.S. Um, the U.S. history of at least the last hundred years, everything from you know um, the progressivism of Woodrow Wilson, um, you know the New Dealers after World War II, setting up the uh, the global institutions from which they'd run the planet from Washington D.C., uh, and uh, that you know there was sort of a sense that the U.S. was at scale and and should go uh, to should always operate on an even bigger scale, and uh, you know should be leading the sort of world revolution, not always you know not always a libertarian one. Uh, there, I'm, I was reminded of the, the uh, joke, um, you know, why, why is the United States the only country in the world where revolution is impossible? Um, it, a answer, because it's the only country that doesn't have an American embassy. Um, <laughs> and so, um, uh, but, but this was in some sense, this was in some sense a, a, a very good strategy for the U.S. It was, it was to lean into the bigness of the country and, uh, and, to, and to, go, to go even bigger. Um, but I think there are sort of some ways we, we may need to update this in the world of, uh, of 2019, where, um, and, and in some ways, it's, it's shaped by the, uh, the rivalry with, with China. And, uh, and if we sort of think about um, a rival that's, uh, that's also incredibly big, uh, simple bigness is not necessarily the right strategy. So we think of the four vectors of globalization that I, I, I often think it's movement of goods, uh, free trade, Movement of people, uh, migration, immigration laws, movement of um, movement of capital, banking, finance, uh, movement of ideas, uh, the internet, and um, and it, it made sense for the U.S. to lean into all these things because, being the biggest, we sort of got outsized returns from scale. Uh, whereas I think if we do sort of a ledger on these today, uh, maybe only uh, two of them are still ones that the U.S. Um, really has a, has a powerful advantage in. I think it's. Uh, Finance and, um, and and the internet, um, even though we of course have misgivings about those two. So uh, so it's sort of a, and there's sort of a sense in which we don't fully trust the banks, we don't fully trust the tech companies, they don't fully trust the U.S. The feelings are sort of mutual, and so it is difficult for us to to really uh, support these companies as national champions. You know, in uh, in the 1950s, the CEO of General Motors could still say what's good for GM is good for America. It's a little bit of a distortion, but it was not that inaccurate. It would be inconceivable today for the CEO of Goldman Sachs or of Google to say that what's good for Goldman Sachs or Google is good for America. They'd 
it would be just inconceivable to say that. And so, uh, and so even though um, this is sort of the model that we probably should, should still be working on, it's, it's quite a tough lift. I think, um, I think when you think of trade or immigration policy, it's um, the scale question is, um, is, uh, is much more sobering for the US. We're not simply not able to compete with China at scale. When you have seven out of 10 of the largest container shipping ports are in China, the largest in, in the US, Los Angeles, is only number 11. You know, if you sort of make the world safe for container shipping, it's, it's making the world safe for the, uh, for the Chinese communist one world state at the end of the day. That's sort of what you're, what you're tilting towards. Or, um, or on, the, you know, on the immigration issue, um, uh, it's, it's striking how, um, how difficult, um, how much better China is at moving goods and people than we are. Um, you know, China has probably had the greatest internal migration of any country in, in the world in the last uh, 20, 30 years. If you look at Shenzhen in southern China, it had uh, 60,000 people in 1980. It's expanded to uh, something like 12 million, a growth of a factor of 200 in the last uh, 40 years. Um, and uh, again, I'll sort of use the contrast of, of New York City, where we had uh, 7.1 million people in 1980. It's grown to 8.4 million in the last uh, 40 years. And it simply does not scale on people. We can scale finance, we can scale tech. People were really bad at scaling. It costs $3.8 billion to buy build one mile of subway in New York City. You know, it's, it's only $400 million per mile in Paris. And, that's, and that, that sort of suggests that you know, any attempt to scale on, on people is, is not the place we should, be, we should be competing. And so there is, I think, some uh, urgent need to rethink all these different uh, scale questions. Where, where are we going to be good? Where, where is it going to be sort of much more challenging? You know, I'm not, um, I'm not a fan of um, AOC, to say the least, but uh, if you you know, if, if you were to steel man one of her arguments that, you know, a a Amazon should not come to New York, uh, the argument was basically that, um, that um, all the um, it would just sort of drive up rents and prices for everybody there. And we have to ask seriously whether that's not entirely wrong. What is actually the inelasticity of real estate in a place where the zoning is so, so controlled that it's, it's not possible? Um, uh, it's very hard to build new things. It's hard to build new, new transportation, th things like that. There's a famous uh, economics theorem from Henry George in the late 19th century that um, you know, in a certain city that's too uh, restricted and too heavily regulated, the inelasticity of real estate ends up being complete so that any gain in the economy of the city simply flows to the landlords. And of course, the, the mistake AOC made was this is also a libertarian argument because you could say that you need to get rid of all welfare in New York City because all the welfare simply goes to the landlords because it's 100% it's uh, of, a, of a transfer. Um, and of course, it's also an argument that we would have to rethink uh, migration very hard. So, you know, to the extent that China has focused our competition, uh, fo focuses our competition, it suggests that uh, we need to think about the scale issue very differently. Um, I, I don't, um, it's a very open question where, where the U.S. should go from here. You know, I, I don't think we, we simply can go subscale. So it's not like Israel or Switzerland or something like that. Um, you know, I sort of would like the U.S. to be a tax haven. Uh, don't know if that quite works at our scale, but um, but uh, but it's it's a very urgent question to think about. What are the kinds of places we can scale um, and, and in in a good way where we can win and um, and do that better in the uh, in the in the in the years and, and decades ahead? And if I had to sort of give one one general gloss on it, I would say that uh, that perhaps um, we have to shift a little bit from quantity 
from simply scaling in size to, uh, to quality. Um, and that's sort, of the, that's sort of the question. And this is you know, back to innovation, back to intensive growth, not just doing more of the same, uh, but, uh, but um, uh, shift towards IP protection, shift towards um, you know, fewer scientists, fewer, um, but actually doing real science, fewer, uh, you know, um, fewer um, good universities, but we understand them to be elite universities, um, and, and somehow um, a shift to quality over quantity is probably the place of comparative advantage that we have to think through really hard vis-a-vis -vis China. Now, the, the place where I think, um, you know, this, um, you know, one of the things I, I always find so befuddling is why these questions of scale have not been asked uh, for, for such a long time, why the, uh, why the China rivalry in some ways has uh, remained obscure for, for as long as it has. And I, I, sort of, um, I sort of think in closing, I'll, I'll, I'll give sort of my thesis on both the, the left and the right. There sort of are some ideological blinders we've had, and I'm gonna sort of be critical of, on both sides here. I think on the left, uh, you know, the, the sort of the distraction machine from asking a question about what to do on the scale of the United States. The distraction machine has been driven by identity politics. Of, of one sort or another, and uh, it's sort of like a subscale. We don't think of the country as a whole; we think of just subgroups within within the country. And I think you know there's something you know insane, self-contradictory about identity politics. I always think you can sort of start with identity um, means what makes you unique. It means what makes you the same. If you start with A and not A, you can prove anything. And uh, I keep thinking the identity politics monster gets crazier and crazier. Maybe it's just flopping around its tail and sort of final death throws but uh, it does seem to have a lot of energy left, and until the left is able to move beyond identity politics, it's not going to be able to focus on, on the scale that we need to be focusing on uh, for, for this country. I think from, um, from the right, um, the, um, the sort of doctrine that I would um, encourage us to rethink is the doctrine of American exceptionalism, which was, um, again, sort of a super big scale but um, sort of put the U.S. on a scale where it simply could not be compared to um, any other country, any other place. And you can think of exceptionalism as, um, you know, I, I often use this sort of theological analog that it's like, a, it's like the radical monotheism of the God of the Old Testament or the Koran, where um, you can't compare anything to God, you don't, can't say anything about his attributes, and, um, and exceptionalism is sort of like saying the U.S. is this country that can't be measured or compared or evaluated in any way possible, and um, and what what happens when you um, are say you're exceptional in all these ways is you probably end up being exceptionally off in different ways. You end up with subways that cost 3.8 billion dollars a mile. You end up with people who are exceptionally overweight. You end up with people who are exceptionally self um, unself-aware. Um, and um, and I think the uh, you know I think something like the corrective to exceptionalism is um, is that you know perhaps in the 2020s. United States needs to settle for greatness. Thank you very much. Mr. Thiel has kindly agreed to uh, take a few questions. Would anyone care to volunteer? AI, you tech people are so annoying. How, how many of us old people know what AI is? But it's artificial intelligence. Why is it communist? 
Well, again, there's a lot, okay, it's, there, there are a lot of qualifiers to this. AI is sort of the buzzword of the day. It can mean the next generation of computers, the last generation of computers, anything in between. It can mean the Terminator movie where it's a robot that kills you. Um, it can mean um, it can mean sort of all these sort of uh, creepy um, social credit scoring things in China, but um, but in practice um, the the um, the main AI applications that people seem to talk about are using large data to sort of monitor people, know more about people than they know about themselves, and um, you know in the limit case it solve may, maybe it can solve a lot of the sort of Austrian economics type problems where you can know enough about people that you know more about them than they know about themselves and, um, and you can sort of enable um, communism um, to work, maybe not so much as an economic theory, but uh, at least as a political theory. So it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it, it is definitely a Leninist thing. And then it is literally communist because China loves AI, it hates crypto. And so that's, that, that tells you, that tells you, uh, I think tells you, tells you something. Um, and then I think, um, and then there, I think there's a common sense level on which it is. This is what you know. People are creeped out at, about it, and this is why, you know. And we should we should we should label it accurately. So, what does a hopeful, great America look like? Like, what can we look forward to? What are your hopes for the next 24 months, let's say? <laughs> well, I, I, I certainly hope that um, the country has more of a future than just 24 months. <laughs> uh, but I, I, think, uh, I, think, I think that, um, you know, my, my, my hopes are that we, we find a way back to more intensive, intensive growth. You know, the, um, the uh, sort of the focus on globalization has been, you know, we sort of divided the world into developing and developed countries. Um, and uh, the developing countries are the ones that are converging with the developed world. The developed countries are those where we're sort of saying there's, um, the future is just not gonna look different from the present. It's just this sort of eternal groundhog day. And, uh, and I think somehow breaking that, that log jam uh, would, would, would be good. So th th there will be a future again. Things will be different from, from the present. You know, we've had progress around tech, around IT, this narrow cone of progress around the world of bits. Um, um, but you know, the iPhones that distract us from our environment also distract us from how strangely old and unchanging our environment is, how the you're riding a subway that's 100 years old. And, uh, and I, think, um, you know, I think sort of a, um, a healthier form of progress would happen on, on many different fronts. And then we can sort of debate you know, why that hasn't happened, what some of the challenges are. But yeah, I would like, I'd like to see innovation not just um, in, in some kind of narrow iPhone app, but, uh, but across the board. So you've talked about in the past, um, Silicon Valley talks about UBI, universal basic income, like everyone's replacing, robots are replacing humans. The average American in Iowa is not gonna have a job. That's a common view in Silicon Valley. In New York, it's not as sympathetic, but um, Trump has tapped into this as people have been left behind. Those people have rallied behind him. You also agree with this, that we should be more nationalist. How do you see um, tech and kind of this like San Francisco, New York centric world um, making room for people 
to enjoy the America dream, whatever that looks like, different from the past 50 years, what it looks like for the next 50 years? So I, I, I disagree with um, all the premises behind your question. I, uh, I think, I th I think you, 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 you've, you've bought the Google propaganda hook, line, and sinker, which is, which, okay, but which, uh, let's articulate this, which is, which is that we have runaway technological progress. Um, you know, a lot of people will be left behind. We need to take care of them. Um, this doesn't show up in any of the data. We have 3.5% unemployment. Uh, the productivity uh, numbers are still pretty anemic. Um, and it doesn't show up in any of the, the economic data. So that's sort of like the, that's sort of the, uh, that's sort of the, the starting point. If you think about automation and the rate of automation, uh, it's basically happened over, um, it's happened over, uh, it's been going on for 200, 250 years since the Industrial Revolution. And pr my suspicion is the rate is slowed because the things that we were able to automate easily, like farming or manufacturing, have been automated. And even if we're still automating manufacturing at the rate of 5% a year, um, it's a much smaller part of the economy. And so the total productivity gains are, are actually slower. The sectors that are left are sectors that look very much the same as they did 100 years ago. And so it's like kindergarten teachers, nurses, yoga instructors, you know, all these sort of non-tradable service sector jobs are fairly immune to automation. They're a large part of the economy. And that's perhaps uh, why, why things have slowed. And then we always have this sort of fantastical story that this is about to change. But it, you know, if you look back over the last 40 years, you know, the simple reason it's slowed is because the sectors that were immune to automation have just become bigger and bigger parts of, uh, parts of this economy. And so I think the, you know, I don't know, I, I, I tend to think the Silicon Valley UBI discussion, it's like some, it's like identity politics, it's like this sort of magic trick where we're drawing your attention away to something else. It's like, well, the technology's gonna take all your jobs and should we have UBI to take care of you? And what we should be paying attention to is that people in Silicon Valley have not been doing enough. You know, there are a lot of critiques of, uh, of the big tech companies, of you know, things they've done wrong and you know, diff different things over the last two years. My, my cut on why there's such a political pushback against um, the tech companies in Silicon Valley is they've not innovated enough. There's, you know, it's, it's like if, if you've done bad things, you know, one of the things you can always say is, well, we've done these good things too. And the list of good things is, is sort of lacking. You know, the, the, the probably the biggest one on the Google list is self-driving cars. You know, I think that would be a significant innovation. On the other hand, they've been promising it for 10 years. They're talking about it less than they were four or five years ago. The expected time seems to be expanding. Um, but it, it's not that big of an innovation. I think going from a horse to a car is bigger than going from a car to a self-driving car. And, and so, you know, we have to sort of quantify this and, and really think through, you know, how much is, uh, how much is, is going on. And, um, and, you know, these problems are, you know, if anything, you know, even more more serious on, on the science side. Uh, and you know, one, of the, one, of the, one form of this problem of scale that I talked about is if you're at too big a scale, um, it becomes impossible to actually know the particulars of, of uh, what is going on. And I think that's maybe it's a feature of late modernity that um, things are so specialized. And we have you know, the cancer researchers talking about how great they are, and the quantum computer people say they're about to build a quantum computer. And you have all these narrower and narrower groups of self-policing experts telling us how, how great they are. Um, I, I can't resist uh, mentioning sort of the uh, anecdote from um, one of my, um, one of my uh, uh, um, friends, uh, uh, his, his advisor at Stanford, Bob Laughlin, is a, um, got a Nobel Prize in physics in late 90s. And um, he suffered from the supreme delusion that uh, once he had a Nobel Prize in physics, he would have academic freedom and he could do whatever he wanted to. And so what they decided, what he decided to do was he was going to um, he was going to sort of investigate all the other scientists at Stanford who he was convinced were sort of stealing money from the government 
and sort of engage in mostly fraudulent research. So just you know, a lot of input of money, but not much output. Um, you know, the um, the two grad students, um, he sort of come into their office one, once a week, and it would be, you know, um, I'm very proud of you. You're we're on the front lines of we're doing battle for science against the whole universe in this office, um, and you can sort of imagine how this movie ended. It sort of was was quite catastrophic. The grad students couldn't get PhDs. He got defunded, and um, and my sort of my hermeneutic of suspicion is always when there's speech that is completely forbidden and questions that are not allowed to be asked. Uh, normally, you should assume that uh, that those things are simply true. I believe we have time for one more question. Up. So, up. please. Uh, thank you. I too have a premise which I now shudder to offer, but I will. Thank you. Um, I welcomed your critique of the very notion of American exceptionalism, uh, which I interpret to be a call for greater humility on a national and cultural level. That's my premise. If the premise is accurate and accurately reflects your view, how, is, how might we achieve that on the political level? Is there a way? Well, this is probably above my pay grade too, but I, I think, um, I, I think the, the starting point, surely, is to frame the issues at the, at the, right, at the right scale. And, um, and you know, exceptionalism can be inspiring. It's, um, it is, but it is, there's something about it that's so abstract that uh, we're not able to talk about the details of what's, what's actually going on. And so I think um, anything where, where we focus, uh, where we're able to focus on, on these questions of detail will be, you know, will be helpful. And that's, that's sort of the place that I would, that I would start. So it's like, you know, can we, where, and, and I think, I think, you know, I think the rivalry with, with China is what's going to, you know, is going to push us to ask these scale questions anew. Going to ask, and, and it, you know, we're, we're not in a great place in a lot of ways, but the country still has a lot of advantages, and uh, we should think really hard. What are our advantages? Where do we, where do we push them? Things like that. And I think it is, you know, it is, it is one of the few issues that are essentially bipartisan. So I, th I think it is actually a place where we could, we could, um, we could have a reasonable discussion. Please join me in thanking Peter Thiel.